All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to um, Redemption Church. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Reggie, and I'm one of the pastors, one of the elders here at uh, Redemption Church. And, um, and today we are continuing on in our series through the Minor Prophets. Uh, several months ago, or a few months back, we started moving through the Minor Prophets. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, Ben had the opportunity to preach on Easter from the book of Hosea, which is difficult, and today I have the opportunity to preach on Mother's Day from the book of Nahum, which is increasingly more difficult. Um, But it is Mother's Day, that's why I put on my good preaching shirt this morning uh, for this event. Um, in In all seriousness, though, today is Mother's Day, right? And so some of you guys are here today celebrating that it's Mother's Day, celebrating your mothers celebrating the children um, that are a part of your life, but also there are those among us today uh, who probably aren't celebrating. Uh, They're probably grieving, grieving that their mothers have passed and that they no longer have an opportunity uh, to be with or to speak to their mothers. There are those who might be grieving because of children that have been lost through miscarriage or through some other means. There are people who are probably hurting because of the very real world pain of uh, not being able to have children from infertility or any other number of reasons. And so there are people here today who are celebrating, there are people who are grieving, and there are people who are hurting. And so to those of you who are here celebrating today, I want you to know that we're celebrating with you, and our God is too. And for those of you that are here grieving today, I want you to know that we're grieving with you as well, and our God is as well. And for those of you here today who are hurting, I want you to know that we're hurting with you as well, and our God is as well. So let's go to our God for a second, and let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your very real love, your very real work in our lives. God, the very real fact that life is sometimes difficult and it hurts and it causes lots of pain, but God, we know that you're still good in the midst of that, even when it's hard to feel that and to know that. And God, this morning as we look at your word, as for the very first time as we look at Nahum, I pray that you would meet us in our celebration, meet us in our grief, meet us in our hurt, even even if the things that we're talking about may not seem like they all work with this. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds, that you would draw us to you. God, I pray that Christ would be lifted in this place, that we would be drawn to you because of Jesus and because of Jesus alone. Holy Father, I pray that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of your love, an instrument of the gospel, that you would be glorified and that we would be drawn to you. And God, I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, our precious Savior. Amen. Nahum chapter 1, if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, Nahum chapter 1. I'm going to go ahead and read all 15 verses. It won't take but a a couple of minutes to do so. But starting in verse 1 of Nahum. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. 
The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue His enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like Stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The book of Nahum is perhaps the least read book of the Bible. By all intents and purposes, it is the sequel to the book of Jonah. In Jonah, the violent Ninevites repented on some level as God sent Jonah to them. And God spared them from their destruction for a while. Fast forward... 100 to 150 years or so, and the Ninevites have repented of their repenting. They've returned to a life of violence. They were used by God to discipline his own people, but now the Ninevites are facing the wrath of God because of their idolatry, because of their exceeding violence, and because of their evil. And just so we're clear When we talk about the evil and the violence of the Assyrians, uh, it it, it can't be over-exaggerated how violent and aggressive that this um, nation actually was. They were brutal, brutal to the people that they would um, conquer. And we saw that in the book of Amos where it talks about God's people being carried out through through holes in the walls of their city with fish hooks in their mouths while they're tied together, led to captivity. And if I'm honest, prior to this sermon series, I've probably read the book of Nahum twice. Once when I was in Bible college, and once when I was in seminary. 
if you go and you look at the collected, published works of some pretty famous preachers, very few have preached sermons on the book of Nahum. There's not a lot of Bible studies about Nahum. There's not a lot of books written about Nahum. And I think part of the reason why is, is it, it boils down to this, is that Nahum is a violent book about violent people. It's aggressive. It's in your face. It's harsh. It's about God totally destroying the Assyrians and the city of Nineveh, all while offering their destruction as comfort to his people. Right? The name Nahum itself means comfort. But there is no comfort for the unrepentant, wicked, and violent in the book of Nahum. Although I would argue that as you read through Nahum, you see God's call to those who are wicked to, to come back to Him. But Nahum is a shockingly violent book. I mean, just, just look at what we just read in the first few verses. The Lord is jealous and avenging. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of His feet. Right, And that pales in comparison to what you're going to see in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Nahum. There's actually a point in chapter 3 where it's said that God will expose the nakedness of the Ninevites and then throw waste at them and then call them wasted. That's not the kind of thing we like to read in Scripture. Right? We want to think about happy things. About Jesus teaching little children. And Jesus healing the sick. And Jesus feeding the 5,000. But when we start talking about God's wrath being poured out on people, we don't really want to talk about that. Our modern sensibilities have a hard time reconciling the, the, the vengeance of God that we see in Nahum with other scriptural commands related to loving our enemies and turning the other cheek. At the same time, the fact that our modern sensibilities don't like this book actually confounds me a little bit. Because we have no problem watching movies and TV shows and reading books that deal with revenge and vengeance and wrath. There's a whole recent movie franchise. I'm not sure if you've heard of it or not. It's called The Avengers. I think they just released a small film about The Avengers. And if you don't know what happens at the end, I'm going to go ahead and tell you. That's a joke. That's a joke. I'm not going to tell you. I wouldn't do that. But the overall premise of the franchise is for Earth's mightiest heroes to fight against evil. Right? Their names are the Avengers. Their goal is to avenge evil. And there was just a series on Netflix over the last couple of years that you may have heard of called The Punisher, where the whole point of the show centers around this one guy who is out for vengeance and revenge and justice. And the second season of that show actually has a character 
there repeatedly references verses like Nahum 1.3 where it talks about God being in the whirlwind and Hosea 8.7 where judgment for evil is referenced as a whirlwind. And in some ways, we as individuals, as a society, take great comfort in knowing that our heroes, like the Avengers, like the Punisher, is out. They're out to, to avenge evil. They're out to right wrongs. We take comfort in knowing that evil will be fought against. That there's somebody there to stand against evil. I think all of this goes to show that we, or at least part of our society, are okay with the concept of vengeance. But at the same time, for some reason, we seem to have a problem with God displaying vengeance and wrath. Maybe, maybe that's because we understand our anger, and maybe we understand that our anger is often baseless and ridiculous. I joke about this sometimes from up here, but I say that I essentially have two emotions, asleep and angry. Um, but I realize as well how ridiculous that is. When Amy and I were dating long ago, long, long time ago now, I was a teenager and Amy was over at my house, at my parents' house, and uh, I don't remember much uh, about what was going on, but my dad wasn't there and he had asked me to change the oil in his car. So I remember going through the process of like um, getting up under the car, draining the oil, um, putting the new oil filter back in, doing everything you're supposed to do, get up, start pouring oil into the car and uh, after I get three or four quarts of oil poured back into the car, I realize that it's all spilling out underneath the car. And the reason why is my dad had actually given me the wrong size oil filter, and I didn't check it. I just, you know, put it on there. Probably should have checked that. And uh, so there's oil all under the car, and I remember just going into a rage, like throwing rocks and throwing, like, like a temper tantrum, <laughs> like throwing rocks and throwing empty oil cans and screaming, like, how stupid my father was. But, <laughs> but right, it was also at that time that I came uh, head first into the realization that my anger is pretty ridiculous and pretty pointless and pretty stupid. And when we think of God's anger in those terms, in human terms, then maybe I can understand our hesitancy to appreciate the vengeance of God. In his great book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer says this about God's vengeful wrath. God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. From a biblical perspective, from the perspective of Nahum, God's anger is something else altogether than what we think about. And I think we see that as we move through the book of Nahum. It's a tough pill to swallow. God's vengeful wrath is difficult to swallow when you go and read the rest of Nahum. But there's something good for us here in the book of Nahum. And we're going to get to that in a second. So I want to start by just breaking this passage down. 
Right In verses 1 through 3, we are introduced to the idea that God is an avenging and wrathful God. We've defined what we mean by that a little bit. But we're reminded of what we saw in Hosea, right in chapter 2 of Nahum 1, that God is a jealous God. A God who is jealous for His people because He knows that He is what is best for them. So He wants His people for Himself. We're reminded in Nahum of what we saw in Jonah, that God is slow to anger and patient in His wrath. That's what verse 3 says, because ultimately God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. And God would rather see people repent and turn to Him than to be destroyed. We're reminded in verse 3 of what we saw in Amos, that God is concerned about justice, that those who are guilty of injustice will be held to account. In Amos, it was God's own people who suffered his wrath because of their unjust ways. But now, in Nahum, we're introduced to the fact that God is going to pour out his wrath on the Ninevites and the Assyrian nation. If you go and you look at the second part of verse 3 to the end of verse 6, let me read it again. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. We see that God, as the creator of everything, wields power over everything and the very clouds and the very whirlwind and weather itself belongs to God because he's the creator and he wields it for his power but not only that we have to understand that the nations the Assyrians the Israelites the the Babylonian nation that will come in and destroy the Assyrians they were all created by God and are used by God for his purposes they are not sovereign on their own they do not stand on their own they belong to God and Nahum reminds us that God is in control here even of the nations do you remember what God said about the nations in Psalm 2 let me read it for you why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill my holy hill. And so we're we're reminded in Nahum verses 3 through 6 that everything that God created is subject to God and to be used for God's glory. Verse 7 of Nahum reminds us of God's goodness. Listen to what it says. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. And that's really what Nahum is about. When We read Nahum, we see wrath. But God's wrath is really just an expression of His love and His goodness in friction with evil and injustice. 
verse 8 through 14, speak of what is coming both for the Ninevites and for God's people Judah. Verse 12 promises comfort for his people when God says, Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Verse 14 promises destruction for Nineveh. God says, I will make your grave, for you are vile. And then verse 15 finishes with something beautiful. It's the same language we see in Isaiah 52, the promise of the one who will bring peace, the promise of the Messiah. And verse 15 says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who bring who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. When you first look at Nahum, you're confronted, you're sort of slapped in the face with this idea that God is avenging, that his wrath is about to be poured out. But if you focus in a little more, if you focus in a little deeper like you would do with a microscope. My daughter Laurel got a microscope for Christmas. So these days we're looking at bird feathers under the microscope and we're looking at dirt and water and whatever else under the microscope. So this, this makes sense to me. But if you focus in a little more, if you dive a little deeper, if you focus in past this initial shock of wrath, when you start to break down this first chapter, you start to see that there's more than wrath present in the book of Nahum. There's something good here. There's the promise of a Messiah. There's the offer of comfort. There's the call to repentance. Both for the violent and wicked Assyrians who might still be listening and for God's people who are living under the injustice and oppression of the Assyrians. To the violent who are still listening. To the Assyrians who might still repent. Listen to what God says in these verses. In verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. In verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. And, and in the first part of verse 15, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Right? Do you see it here? Do you see it? God is saying something about himself. Yes, I'm going to avenge injustice and evil because I'm good. And avenging justice and evil is my love poured out in a way that makes sense. But also come to me because I'm good. I'm slow to anger. Deal with your guilt by coming to me and taking refuge in me. Find a place with me. Come to me because I have what you need. I have the peace that you need as opposed to the violence that you're used to. God is saying that he ultimately has this offer of peace for those who would turn to him. If you just come to me. The offer is present in Nahum. But also to his people who are currently oppressed and living under the weight of the Assyrians and being violated by the Assyrians, God says this in the second part of verse 3, His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. 
because God is powerful and He's in control of everything. All of His creation is subject to Him and ultimately justice belongs to Him. Verses 8 through 9 says, But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue His enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. God offers comfort to His people by saying that He is going to enact divine vengeance on those who have unjustly dealt with His people. I don't think we can fully grasp that. Brent and I were talking about this a little earlier. We live in a society to where we are not oppressed like God's people were under the Assyrians. So this offer of comfort may not make sense to us. But if you are subjugated, if you are living under the oppression of someone else, then by all means, God's saying, I am going to avenge the evil that has been enacted on you. You would be saying, yes, God, let justice roll down. Bring it, God. In the second part of verse 15, he promises restoration for his people. He says, keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. There's an offer to take refuge. There's an offer of comfort that God continually gives in Nahum chapter 1. And so with all of that said, what do we do with this? Where do we go from here? Nahum is about God's wrath. But Nahum is about God's goodness. Nahum is about a call to repent and take refuge in the goodness of the Lord. And Nahum is about the unique comfort that comes from knowing that God is righting the things that have gone wrong. Just like we take comfort in superheroes fighting evil, God is dealing with the overwhelming effects of evil. And so we've got to reconcile that God's wrath and God's love, God's wrath and God's goodness, they are not mutually exclusive. They are not incongruous. I realize the limits of this illustration, even the absurdity of it, but stay with me. Who in here loves peanut butter? Right? Unless you have an allergy to peanut butter, or you're just plain weird. You like peanut butter. I, I'm kidding. Not really. But. but who in here loves peanut butter on your pancakes with syrup on the top? Have you tried it? Right? It is delicious. And when you first think about that, it doesn't make sense. It's great. Who loves peanut butter on a hamburger with bananas and honey? If you haven't tried it, try it. Who likes peanut butter in your spicy chili? Anybody? Right? Okay. These things don't seem like they make sense. They don't seem like they go together. They don't seem like they would work together. But in reality, they do. And I think that is exactly what happens with God's love and God's wrath. They go together. They work together. Well, certainly, God's wrath cannot be separated from His love. God's wrath is ultimately contingent upon His love. It makes no sense apart from His love. But divine wrath is righteous antagonism toward all that is unholy. 
It is the revulsion of God's character to that which is a violation of God's will. Divine wrath is a function of divine love. For God's wrath is his love for holiness and truth and justice. It is because God passionately loves purity and peace and perfection that he reacts angrily toward anything and anyone who would defile those things. God's anger is the anger of grace. It isn't the violent anger of unbridled and unrighteous fury. God isn't like me. God is not like us. God's anger always works to right what is wrong. That's what grace does. And God's gracious anger has two sides to it. It has a side of justice and it has a side of mercy. In the gracious anger of justice, God works to punish wrong. But he goes even further than that. God isn't satisfied merely with punishing wrong because his hunger for right is so strong that he will not relent until wrong has been completely destroyed. He will not rest until evil is no more and justice and righteousness reign forever and ever. And we see that wrath on injustice poured out in Nahum for the sake of the oppressed. But we also see that wrath poured out in Nahum for the sake of the oppressor. We see that wrath poured out in Nahum for the sake of the sinner. And in God's gracious anger of mercy, God works to deliver those who are practicing injustice. To call them and to call us to repentance. To call them and to call us to himself. Right? And so where do we see this anger of mercy and this anger of justice come together most perfectly? We see it on the cross. And Nahum 1.15 points us directly to Jesus. When it says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Do you recall what the angel said to the shepherd at Christ to the shepherds at Christ's birth? Let me remind you. They said, "Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased." And the good news of peace at Jesus' birth is not just that Jesus is present. The good news of peace at Jesus' birth is that Jesus will die to satisfy God's wrath against sin and that he will rise again to defeat satan and sin and death and all of our idols in order to bring peace right on a cosmic level god's wrath is a demonstration of his love god's wrath always serves to right wrongs to defeat evil to bring justice and righteousness and god's wrath ultimately brings us peace with him so that we can go from being enemies with god to being part of his family. That's the assurance of pardoning grace that we read a minute ago from Romans chapter 5. The wrath that Nineveh felt is the same wrath that Jesus endured on the cross. And with the resurrection, Jesus has made peace by defeating all of God's enemies. 
with the resurrection, Jesus is bringing to fruition God's ultimate righting of all wrongs. And we haven't fully seen it yet. And the day will come when we do. But we have to understand what I want us to understand is that with the resurrection, Jesus has won this incredible victory over the very injustice and the very evil that we see in Nahum. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. And then Jesus defeated all of God's enemies that we might have peace. Because of Jesus, God has righted all the wrongs. It's his love and his justice coming together. It's the anger of justice and the anger of mercy poured out on Christ that we might have peace. The world might be put back the way that God intended it to be. That's incredible. And so the call for us this morning is to take refuge in what Christ has done. The call for us this morning is to hear the words of Nahum and to take refuge in the victory of Jesus. The call for us this morning is to take comfort in knowing that God has defeated evil. Like the Assyrians, do we need to repent and take refuge in Jesus? Like God's people in Judah, do we need to rest in the fact that God is at work? Even though his timing is not ours, and even though our hurts are real, do we need to take refuge in God because he's good? And the question is, in what ways are we missing the peace that Jesus brings because Jesus has already done it? In what ways are we missing that peace. The message of Nahum is that God is good. The message of Nahum is that his wrath brings justice and mercy. The message of Nahum is ultimately God wins. And we get the peace that comes from God's victory. Let me encourage you. Let me urge you to take comfort and refuge in our Savior to rest in the fact that God is at work even though his timing is not ours and our hurts are real. Let me encourage you to run after that peace that Jesus offers. We're going to enter into a time of response like we do every um, Sunday morning. Um, Just as a reminder, uh, in just a few minutes we will be doing baby dedications. And so if you have kids in the nursery Um, in just a moment would be a good time when we pray to go ahead and and to begin bringing those out, but those those children out. But but as we enter a time of response, a couple of things are going to happen. The band is going to come back up and lead us in a song, um, give us an opportunity to worship through singing. During this time, we have an opportunity to respond to what God is saying to us by sitting where we are, praying, thinking, Um, whatever it might be. We have an opportunity to worship by giving. There's a giving table in the back. We have an opportunity to worship by taking communion. Uh, Up here in the front, there's a a couple of tables where you can come down these side aisles, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and so remember the body of Christ that was given for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And we take communion every Sunday here at Redemption as a way to remember what Christ has done and proclaim to one another that it's true and that we believe it. 
So if you're here and want to remember what Christ has done for you and, and proclaim that it's true and that you believe it, I would invite you to come and take communion, whether you're a member of Redemption or not. Um, but I'm going to pray for us, and we'll move forward with that. God, thank you for the reminder from your word that you are good and that you have done something incredible on our behalf. God, I pray that, that as we continue to respond over the next few minutes, I pray that Jesus would continue to be lifted high in this place, and I pray that we would continue to be drawn to you because of Christ. God, thank you for his unbelievable work on our behalf. Thank you for his unbelievable victory. And even now, God, may we focus on Christ and be drawn to you. God, I ask this in the name of Jesus himself. Amen.